before we launch into our, our new sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit, I wanted to take just a week, and I want to raise this question here that you see on the screen. What kind of church do you want to be? So that's a question that I hope that you're going to be able to, to wrestle with a little bit as we go throughout uh, the, uh, the message this morning. What kind of church do you want to be? Now, much of the New Testament is made up of letters written to individual churches or letters written to pastors of churches, um, or the, it talks about churches. And so we have, or even the book of Acts, for, for instance, that tells us how the, the church even started. And so we've got much of the New Testament is about churches. And so as we wrestle with this question, what church or what kind of church do you want to be this morning? We really have several examples from the scriptures to consider. I mean, first of all, and I'm just going to just go through some of these real quickly here. We got the Church of Rome, for instance. What do we know about the Church of Rome? Well, we know that their faith was proclaimed and that they were encouraging to Paul and that Paul encouraged them. Not only do we have the Church of Rome, but the Church at Berea, we find out in the book of Acts, it was known for searching the Scriptures daily. They were known for people who got into the book. What about, there was a church on the island of Crete. It was a small church that had just started out. And basically, Paul tells Titus, he's like, okay, it's a mess there. You got to put it into order. Here's your mission assignment. Go get this church going, okay? Embryonic, small little church on the island there. And then we have the church at Philippi, where Paul, he said he was thankful for their partnership in the gospel. And they gave, we find out in chapter 4, that they gave sacrificially. Then we can move to Galatia, where Paul, he says in the first part, he was so shocked and dismayed that they moved away from the gospel quickly. What about the church of Antioch, where we see that they sent out their best members as missionaries of the gospel? Or Corinth, we consider Corinth, where they had a, a lot of problems, there was a lot of issues there. But he said that that church, Paul said, even as he was dealing with the issues, so he wasn't just being naive about the church, while he was dealing with the issues, he said that they did not lack any spiritual gift in that church. He said there's nothing lacking there in spiritual giftedness. And that they were being sustained by God as they waited for Jesus to come back. And that's just part of the letters and acts and things like that. If you move to the book of Revelation, you see there's seven churches listed in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, too, that Jesus is talking to. First is the church at Ephesus. And so that's a, they had good doctrine, they endured trials, but we know that they left their first love, and Jesus said they needed to repent of that. Move on to church at Smyrna, where they were known for enduring suffering. They dealt with suffering after suffering after suffering. Pergamum, literally, they were in the devil's den. This is how Jesus refers to them, and like the throne of Satan there in that region, but they were standing fast. However, they were starting to add to the gospel message, and so Jesus calls them to repentance. Or Thyatira, they were known for love, faith, service, endurance, and great works. Yet they were tolerating sin, specifically sexual sin, in their midst, so Jesus called them to repentance. And then there's a church of two other churches, Philadelphia. Jesus says they're set before an open door, they're literal in power, but they kept Jesus' words and they were enduring. And then finally, the church at Laodicea. 
They were neither hot nor cold. So Jesus says, I would just rather you be hot or cold. Otherwise, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth, meaning they weren't useful. You can use hot water, you can use cold water, but that lukewarm water, Jesus says, there's no use for it. And so these are some of the churches, just as a flyover real quick, that the Bible talks about. And we can look at some of these churches as examples. But I've left out one that I think deserves our attention this morning. And that is the example of the church at Thessalonica. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and go to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, and this is going to be page 986 if you're using one of the Bibles uh, provided for you in, uh, in the pews there. So what I want to do is I want to read uh, about 10 verses here, the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and I want to talk a little bit about this example of the church and uh, some of the characteristics and then maybe a path of how we can emulate some of these things this morning, the church of Thessalonica. First of all, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, it says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, now let me put a parenthesis there for those of you who know your Bible, you know in Acts chapter 16, there's a man by the name of Silas, Paul and Silas were in prison. That's the same guy here, Silvanus, okay, it's just a different language, different way to say his name. So when you read Acts 16, and Paul is in prison with Silas, and now we read here, Paul, Silvanus, same guy. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So here we have the church of Thessalonica. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about how this church started. If we're going to look at how the church began, this this, the church's beginning, okay, here. We see this in Acts chapter 17 is where we'd find out. We're not going to turn there, but it, it might be an interesting read for you later on. There in Acts chapter 17, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys, and what he's doing is, is he's going to different cities, and he comes to the city of Thessalonica. And he begins to, to tell people about the gospel there, and there are, uh, 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 it's a mixed reception, there are some people that believe, and that there are some people who mock, and there are some people who just don't believe at all. 
And, uh, and so Paul's there for three weeks. He's there for three weeks in the city, teaching in the synagogues. He's trying to tell people about Jesus Christ, and so he's there for about 20, 21 days or so. Well, some people don't like what happens. Some people begin to stir up uh, 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 opposition against Paul and his team. In fact, they even hire people to come and, and, and come in and, 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 and basically riot in the city. And it gets so bad, it gets so bad that, that Jason, a guy by the name of Jason, who was, we assume that was sheltering this missionary team that Paul was on during that time, that he sends them away. He says, you guys gotta, gotta get out of here. They're gonna kill you. They are so fired up about this, that they're going to kill you. And so in the meantime, they come to Jason's house, this riot, these rioters come to Jason's house, and they're, they're looking for Paul, and they're wanting to kill him. And so when they find out that he's not at Jason's house anymore, they grab Jason himself, and they pull him out of his house. They pull him into the streets, and they are just railing on him, and just railing on him. And finally, basically what happens is it says there in Acts chapter 17, that they had taken security from Jason, they let him go. Now, what does that mean? That they made him pay a bunch of money, almost like a bail, promising that Paul and his team would never come back to the city again, and saying that he is not welcome here, and we are going to pull out this, this exorbitant amount of money from you, and if, if they ever come back, it's ours, type thing. So not exactly like the the, the fertile ground you would think for a model church to come from. In fact, later on, Paul, when he says that he's going to say in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians that he wanted to go back and visit this church, but he couldn't because Satan hindered him. And I think that's reference to the ban. They were banned for life from entering the city. But yet... And that three weeks, it was just three weeks that Paul was there. It wasn't like he had a, a major church planting launch campaign there where they had a, a, a soft launch and they were there forever, you know, for, for a few months rather, and then they, they started the church. No, three weeks, and the church was started. And Paul says it really become the model church in a lot of ways. So what are some of the characteristics about these churches? Let's go through this. This is why I had you look at 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to look at this uh, from these first 10 verses here. First of all, if I'm, going to, if I'm going to describe this church from what Paul says here, the first thing I noticed was that it was a fighting church. So you must say, well, that must mean it was a Baptist church, okay? Um, now, it doesn't mean that kind of fighting, okay? Um, now, why did I say a fighting church? Well, did you notice that the words, he says, there, it says that they had evidence of grace and the fact that there was faith, hope, and love. Did you pick up on that in verse 3? It says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. These are all evidences of grace. But did you notice that the scriptures before those three? It says, work of faith. It's not easy. Labor of love. Steadfastness of hope. You know, the Christian life isn't easy. And the Thessalonian church understood that, that if they were going to have faith, hope, and love, if they were going to show these evidences of God's saving grace in their life, that this was a fight. This is something that we're going to have to work hard for because faith isn't natural to us. It's a gift, and then we have to work it out according to Philippians chapter 2. If we get the gift, and we know that Jesus is the one that sustains us, 
but yet there's a beautiful partnership there, a relationship there where we have to work out that faith. And this is apparently what the Thessalonian church was doing, that they were working their faith, much like Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. It wasn't easy. Labor of love. Love is not easy. Um, my brother got married uh, a few weeks ago. And I didn't do any of the premarital counseling, but I did do uh, a, a significant part of the wedding. And uh, so I talked to him before he got married. And then uh, I went to, after this, this last class that I took, the, my parents were watching the kids, so we had to drive back to Michigan to pick the kids up. And my brother was back from his honeymoon, and we went out to lunch, and we're, we're talking, you know. You know, I wanted to get advice from him on marriage, now that he'd been married for two weeks. And so, um, to see what lessons he had learned in his long career of being a married man. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. He says, yeah, so far it's awesome. He says, and you told me and other people told me that it would be work. He says, and I'm already seeing it, <laughs> okay? Two weeks into this thing. Now, he's happily married, you know, you know so it's not, not anything against his marriage or something like that. But he's realizing what all of us already know and what he knew, but now that there's some experience behind it, is that showing love to someone is work. In the context of a church, showing love to each other is not always easy. Showing love to your spouse, to your children, to your employer, to your employees, to your family members, to your coworkers, whoever it is. That is not an easy thing. But the Thessalonian church, it seems like that they had this labor of love. And not only that, they had a steadfastness of hope. And so they were fighting for the hope of Christ returning, the hope in Christ. And that when Satan would love to discourage them and bring them ways or thoughts of discouraging or to despair, that, that they would say, no, we're going to have a steadfast hope that God is going to keep his word, that he is going to do what he said and he is going to do. So when I start to doubt whether or not God is going to actually work and do something great in our midst, there we have this hope in Jesus Christ that he says, if we endure, we will reap if we faint not. Now that doesn't mean we're going to see great harvests necessarily, but we are going to see evidences of grace among us. And this is the steadfastness of hope that they had. And so if we're going to be like the Thessalonian church, what do you think about this? That the Christian life for a healthy church, all of these things that we're talking about, it's going to take us to fight for them. We can't just sit and think it's going to naturally happen. We've got to fight for it. We've got to fight for faith. We've got to fight for hope. We've got to fight for love. So it was a fighting church. Not only was a fighting church, but, and this is the second part, the second characteristic, is so important because it enables the first, and the fact that it, is a, it was a spirit-enabled church. Now, it's one thing for us to say, we've got to fight. We've got to fight hard. But if we do it in our own strength, we're going to fail. But this, this was not a church that just said, okay, we're going to be a good church, and we're going to covenant together, we're going to link arms, and we're going to be good. No, this was a church that was spirit-enabled. Now, how do I know that? It says, look at this in verse 4. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came not to you in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And then later on in verse 6, it says that you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And so they were able to receive the word in affliction, 
affliction. What was it? Remember I told you the story of how the church got started. It was in this middle of a riot that it got started. That the person who started the church was permanently banned from being in their city. Their church was started in much affliction. They received the word in much affliction. But it says that in the affliction, they had joy. They had joy. How? Because the Spirit gave it to them, is what it says in verse 6. So from the beginning, it appears that God, in His graciousness and His mercy, said, I am going to pour out my Spirit upon this church. And that's the reason why I became a model church. And so if we're going to be a church like the Thessalonian church, that we need to be dependent, I mean completely dependent upon the Spirit of God. We have to be praying that God does what only He can do in our midst. Only He can affect change. Only he can make it so that we are people who overcome our fears, our fears of witnessing or our fears of, of uh, encouraging people. What are they going to think of me? Um, since I shared it publicly, I, I, I'm going to share this, this second part. I'm not meaning to embarrass Jessica at all when I say this, but I, I, I told you a couple weeks ago that she had asked me about witnessing someone, and I mentioned that publicly to put the pressure on her to do it. And while I was gone, she sent me texts, and she said, I did it, okay? Now, I just told her, I said, oh, this is great, it's great, but I waited until today to say, now you got to do it again, okay? And, and she's doing it. Now, I'm not trying to put Jessica on a pedestal, that's the last thing she'd want, okay? But what she's doing is she's, she's, she's we were just talking about before the service, of how that God is changing how we view things. This is spirit-enabled growth. This is spirit-enabled power that if our church is going to grow and, and, and be the church that God wants us to be and follow the example like the Thessalonian church, that we've got to be dependent on the Spirit. And so, I've told you this before. Jesus says in John 4, tells his disciples, he says, lift up your eyes. See the fields while we're into harvest. And so we need to start looking up. We need to start seeing around us. And so what we need to do is we need to ask God's Spirit to reveal that to us. Shouldn't it be a, a, an everyday prayer of ours to say, God, who is it that you want me to witness to today? Who is it that you want me to share joy with today? Who is it that you want me to encourage today? Should that not be something that we often pray? And I think we always say yes. But the only way that you're even going to pray that is if the Spirit of God puts it in your heart. So go even a layer beneath that and say, God, give me the desire to do what is right. Give me the desire. Incline my heart towards you. My heart, what is that the hymn says? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do we really understand the, 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 um, the depths of sin that our hearts really has and how we're prone to wander? See, we got to be dependent on the Spirit for, for all things. And this is what the Thessalonian church was. They were a church that they were Spirit-enabled. They were a fighting church. And they were also, thirdly, they were a teachable church. You see that verse 6, it says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word and much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. And it seems that when you look at this church, that this was a church that they were willing to learn. They were willing to say, okay, we don't have all the answers. And they understood they understood the fact that, uh, uh, that the, the, the salvation that they had was merely grace. And so they were teachable. And they followed the example of Paul, and they followed the example of Paul's missions team. And it seems that this is what God used for them to become a mature church. 
They became imitators of Paul, and not only of Paul, but it's more important when it says, and of the Lord. Once they learned about Jesus, they said, that's who we need to be like. Yeah, I, sometimes I think, and this going back a little bit to the point, these are all connected about the spirit enablement. You know, I, I was sharing this with someone, um, oh, I think it was Friday night, um, when we got together and watched, some of us watched that movie. Um, you know what I doubt? You know, in Sunday school we talked about the sovereignty of God. I, uh, I don't doubt at all for one moment that God can do great things. Never doubt that. I really don't. I mean, I have so much evidence that I look at the book of things that God has done. I, I mean, I think there's nothing God cannot do. I mean, you look at some of these stories in the Bible. He's parting the sea. He's walking on water. He's healing people. I mean, to, just, to, just to kind of show, to teach Moses a lesson, he's like, okay, put your hand in your coat. It comes out, ah, leprosy. Put it back in. Healed, okay? I mean, God can do anything. I mean, there's nothing he can't do. So I don't doubt that. But you know what I do doubt? Whether or not God will do something great. I pray about our church. I pray about my own life. I pray about my family. I pray about our country. I know God can just snap his fingers and make this the most mature church or make me the most mature Christian or make me the best father or make this the, most, the best country in the world. I know he can just snap his fingers and that can happen. My sin doesn't come there. My sin comes, I don't believe he's going to. And that's something that we got to repent of because I don't think I'm the only one. Now, I'm not saying that we just have to have positive thinking and say, okay, if I think it, then God's going to do it. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that it is an expression of doubt and lack of faith when I say, I know you can, but you're not going to. That's sin. And this is, this is someone who, you know, we got to be teachable in following the Lord and saying, okay, you have done this. You have said you will do this. You have said that we will reap if we faint not. That's a promise that you have given. Now, we sometimes have a different idea of what reaping looks like, but nonetheless, we are going to see fruit, or there will be fruit because of the the things that we do. Why is it that we don't witness? A lot of times, it's because, why is it we don't tell people about Christ? Because number one is fear, number one. I think number two is because we don't think it really works. We just don't think it works. We think that, yeah, I, I talk to people about it, but it doesn't make any difference. But we're just so short-sighted because, you know, who knows what God's doing to bring people to Christ? We may be simply the people who are planting the seeds or watering the seeds, and years later, God will bring someone else to reap the harvest. I, I brought this up before. I know I, I've brought up several times, but I've got to remind you again. John 4, he sends the disciples, he says, you're going to reap where you have not sown. Good job, disciples. You get to go out there and, and reap, and you haven't even done the work of sowing the seed. But what does that mean? That means someone else sowed, and they didn't reap. So is it worth it? Is Christ worth it to you to sow seeds but never see a harvest? Is Christ worth it for you to consistently tell people about Jesus and you not be the one to see them follow Christ? Is Christ worth it to you? 
Is he valuable enough to say, I'm simply going to obey you and do what you've asked me to do, and the results are totally up to you? Is Christ that valuable to you? See, the reality is, is um, we're saying that Christ isn't enough or that we deserve better. How many prophets were sent out specifically by God to go and preach the gospel knowing that the people would not listen. Are we better than them? Is our lives more valuable than them? Is our time worth more than these prophets? Do we have a better value in God's uh, economy than these prophets? How many times has God sent disciples into the storm? We talked about that in Sunday school. How many times has he sent them into the storm? feeling all alone because God was going to display his glory there. But as soon as the water gets a little choppy in our life, what is the first thing? We start crying, God, ah, why are you doing this? And we would never say this, but we're really saying, I deserve better. And so this church, it seemed to be that they were spirit-enabled. They were fighting for faith, hope, and love. That they were teachable. They were following Jesus and saying, Jesus, you are worth it. You are worth the affliction. You are worth it all. So that's the question we need to wrestle with. Is Jesus worth it? They were also an obedient church. They weren't content just with learning. They were obedient. Verse 9, it says, For they themselves report, this is the other people everywhere, Concerning the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So what they did is they, didn't, they weren't just content about learning about Jesus and saying, oh man, this is good. Jesus died for sins. That's great. No, they were obedient. They turned from idols and not only did they just turn from and say, okay, we're not going to worship the God anymore, is they serve the living God. Notice those verbs. Notice the, the action there. They turned from it and then they served. They were obedient. This is the reason why they're an example church. And they did it in such a way that it was, they simply told their story to people. That it was so much, it says that in verse 8, it says, so that we did not need to say anything. What does Paul mean by that? It means that when they were going around the city, they didn't have to say to these other cities, hey, did you hear about what happened in Thessalonica? Because they had already heard about it. Because they were telling their story of how Jesus had transformed them, how Jesus had changed them, and they were just simply being obedient. Now, I want to be careful with this illustration. I, I heard it in a book that Anouk and I listened to we were, while we were driving. We spent a lot of time in the van in the last few weeks, and, and there was a book that, um, uh, by Francis and Alicia Chan uh, that they wrote on marriage. And he gave this illustration. I thought it was very helpful, but I do want to be sensitive about it. He says... Um, he says, you know, if you have, and he told a story about how he, he, he saw someone interviewed who was extremely obese. We're talking like 800 pounds obese. Now, again, the reason why I'm being careful with this is because I recognize, first of all, I never want anyone to think that I'm making fun of people that are overweight because I'd be making fun of myself. But number two, um, I understand that particularly in that extreme of situation, often there's other factors that go into that, okay? So I want to be sensitive about that. But I thought his illustration was helpful. He said, you know, 
it was amazing of how that they got to the point where they were, they, were, they were confined to their bed and to their house. They couldn't walk anymore. They couldn't even, uh, uh, they had no mobility. People had to bring them things to eat and things like that. And so he said what they needed in that moment was not more intake. What they needed was motion. They needed to move. They needed the ability to work off some of the things that they were ingesting. And so here's the illustration. Sometimes as church members, we are really good at intake. We're really good at learning more food. And we love the food of the Word of God. And that's awesome. And that's great. And, and, and so as I'm teaching, some of you are like, hey, that's a good fact. Oh, that's really good. I like that. And so there's intake and we need that. But if there's only intake and no motion and no obedience and no exercise, it's going to cripple us. We can flip an illustration and say it this way. You can go into the woods, and I hear, because I don't go in the woods very often, but you can go into the woods, and sometimes you'll find a pond or a standing water there. And often in those situations, the water is not water you'd want to drink. It's stagnant, and there's all sorts of things, and algae and all sorts of stuff that are growing in this thing. And you would not want the water at all. Now, that water, when it came into that location, was life-giving. You could have drank it. But because it just sat there, it lost its life-giving properties. And I believe that if we take the Word of God in and we learn, that's awesome. They were a learning church. But if we don't let that change us, like to turn from idols to serve a living God, we're going to be stagnant. And that life-giving property is actually going to end up, it's, it's going to end up just killing us because we're going to think we're okay. And so they were a church that was obedient. And finally, they were a disciple-making church. So they were a fighting church. They were a spirit-enabled church. They were a teachable church. They were an obedient church, but they were a disciple-making church. Did you see this in verse number 7 where it says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone out everywhere. It's gone out everywhere. It's gone out. They simply, as I told you a minute ago, they simply told their story. Here, let me put up another map on the screen there for you. That is like the influence of Thessalonian. In that green section where the, the, the left the bottom arrow is, uh, that's Achaia. Macedonia is right above it. In all those two regions, Achaia, Macedonia, and then not even just those regions, all the way out, we see them have an influence. You know what this reminds me of? Remember Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They were a spirit-enabled church. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the Thessalonian church doing this. And this is what we need to be doing. The gospel needs to come out from Verona. It's got to come out from Madison. It's got to come out from Oregon, from Mount Horeb, from whatever city that we all represent here. It's got to go out from here into Wisconsin, into the United States, Dane County, into the uttermost parts of the earth. A disciple-making church. And so... These are the church's characteristics. Now, in the last five minutes, I, I, if, 
if you're someone who likes balancing your message, this is not your message. Sorry. In the last five minutes, let me just show you the path to being like this church, okay? Because it's one thing for me to put out and say, hey, this is what we need to be, but how do we get there, okay? You're going to recognize a lot of this. This is why it's only going to take about five minutes or so. I want you to notice something, though, first. Notice the question that I asked in the beginning. I didn't say, what kind of church do you want to go to? Did you notice that? I said, what kind of church do you want to be? And there's a difference there. Because like it or not, you are making this church what it is. Okay? So don't think you come to this church. I don't come to this church. I am this church, meaning I'm part of this church. So if we don't like our church at any point, we just got to look in the mirror, okay? And we got to say, all right. Why don't we like it? So here's a question that I was going to say. If, um, you know, do you feel comfortable inviting people to church here? If the answer is no, then we got to talk about why not. Okay? And again, there's no perfect church. And there's going to be preference issues. But and that's not exactly what I'm getting at here. I'm getting at fundamental core issues of the church. What kind of church are we? And what kind of church do we want to be? So we need, to, we need to wrestle with that question. Here's a way, another way to think about it. If every member of this church, we have 104 adult members of this church, if all 104 adult active members in this church were exactly like you, what would this church look like? If it was exactly like me, what would a church look like? Now again, that by God's design, he wants the differences, okay? That's not what I'm getting at. I'm looking at, are we hitting it? Are we hitting it? Are we following the Great Commission? Are we being a disciple-making church? Are we being an example? Are we growing? I'm not even looking at perfection. I'm saying, are, are we growing in this? Are you growing in this? So like it or not, what you are is what you are helping and contributing to making this church be. Even if... Uh, there's no effort, intentional effort on your part because you are the church. So how do we get to the Thessalonian church? What's the path? First of all, we got to embrace the why. You'll recognize this. You're going to be like, oh, this again. Yes, this again. Okay, embrace the why, all right? Why do we exist, okay? Why do we exist? Here, we exist, okay, to glorify God through making disciples. I'm going to do something I've never done before. We're going to say this together. Here we go. We exist to glorify God through making disciples. Okay, so this is, I think you do better now. Here we go. We exist to glorify God through making disciples. This is why we're here, Matthew 28, okay? And so here's the thing. If we want a church that is unified, okay, here's the thing. If we want a church that just enjoys being together where there's great fellowship and we just love being with one another, because that's a lot of times what people look for at church. They look for a church that, man, I just love being part of this church, okay? And there's this unity here. Do you know how we get there? Do you know how we get there? Here's how we get there. We get there by sharing the same vision. That's how we get there. In any relationship, it's that way. I don't know if you've ever been on a short-term missions trip. In the beginning of it, what are you guys doing? You guys don't know each other too well. But by the end of the trip, there's like this shared camaraderie. All right? Well, what happened is for those two weeks or that week or whatever it was, you were sharing the same vision. 
You know, this was a point Francis and Lisa Chan made in their book and talking about marriage, and they were just saying that, you know, if they want unity in their marriage, what brings them unity is not camping trips. What brings them unity is not special dates, although those are good things, except for the camping. I don't like camping. But the point is, is, is uh, uh, those special activities, yes, that can be helpful, but that's really not what's going to bring unity. What they told us in their book, and they were so right, Anuk and I, when we were listening to it, we were driving, we stopped and we said, man, this is, this is so true. What brings unity is when you share the same vision and the same mission. Why are you here? All of a sudden, if Anouk and I are agreed in our marriage of why we exist, guess what? All those other little things just start going away. And as a church, if we can agree on why we're here and we share this vision together, we come together for this this purpose, we're going to see unity and fellowship explode in this place like you never have seen before. If we all say, this is why we're here, and we're going after that. That's what brings unity and joy and relationship. So we've got to embrace the why. Secondly, we have to enact the how. And this is the series that we just got going through, relational gathering. We've talked about relational gathering of how the, we get together and we get together corporately. We get together individually. We talked about relational gathering. We talked about continual growing in our lives that we're trying to help others continue in their lives, in their growth, and we're trying to grow in our life. And so this is something that we've talked about, okay? We've gone through this series. Then it was sacrificial giving that we had have to be willing to give of our time, of our abilities, of our money for the purpose of making disciples. This is the path. This is how we make disciples here. And then we have intentional going. And this is the idea of, of not only across the world, but even in our own context here. You look around and say, okay, who can I influence? Who can I encourage today? And so we have a gathering here today. We have people here today that are in this room that have come together today. And it hasn't come because of history. And it's not because of heritage that you're here. It's because God has brought you here. And so we have this unique gathering here. Every week is different. Every week is completely different. Even if the exact same people were here from one week to the next, it still would be a different gathering because we're bringing different experiences and we're bringing different emotions and we're bringing different burdens to this place right here. So intentionally look around and say, who can I encourage today? This is part of disciple making. When you look in your neighborhood, say, who should I be telling about Jesus Christ? Who should I be witnessing to? Who should I be sharing the gospel with? So this is the how of disciple-making, and because we just went through a sermon series, I'm not going to go through it and re-preach this, even though I'm tempted to, but I won't. I'll save that for another time. Number three is to evaluate the what, okay? This is what we're going to get to. We're starting this right now, and what I mean by that is, so we, we're solid in the why, how we're going to do this is these, these core principles, those four core principles, but now this what? This is all the ministry programs. So what we're entering into a phase right now, it's, it's been going. I've got a running start on this. But as a church, we're going to start entering into this phase of evaluating everything. Evaluating everything. And with the main question of, are we making disciples? Is this helping us make disciples? And we're, I mean, that we're talking evaluate um, uh, what are we doing to be a Great Commission Church, evaluating every ministry 
uh, that we're doing here. Evaluate how we spend money. Evaluate what we schedule. All these things with this question here that I'm going to put on the screen and leave it there for, until, until I pray. Are we making disciples here at NBC? I'm telling you, this is what I'm giving my life to here. That I grow personally in this because I've got to grow in this. Okay, I'm right there with you. But we're giving our lives here to see this church make disciples. Because when I get to heaven, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear you ran well. And I know this is the key to that. So let me conclude with this. What type of church do you want to be? As I said, you're making this church what it is. And I can say that there is evidence that God is beginning to work here. There's things that I'm hearing, stories that I'm seeing, conversations that I'm having of people who are being sensitive to the Spirit of God. And it's encouraging to me. I can share you with, if you want, I'll share some of those stories with you sometime, of things, and I just don't want to embarrass people, uh, even though Jessica's like, yeah, right. But I, I, I want, I, I, I can share some of those with you offline, but I do want you to know that there, there's things that God's beginning to do here. But you know what hymn keeps coming to my mind? Mercy drops around us are falling. I see mercy drops. I see things happening. But for the showers we plead. Isn't that going to be great? It's going to come. It's going to come. So if you want our church to be great, uh, we got to have everyone putting their shoulders to the work here. It's one thing to say we'd like to be a church like Thessalonians, but we got to do what they did and so, um, I had other things to say, but due to the time, I'm just going to cut it. Here's the thing. Let's make disciples. Let's make disciples. Let's be like the Thessalonian church. Let's pray. Father, um, you know, I, I, not the most tight message in terms of presentation and all that, and I don't apologize for that because this is what, this is what you had. And we're family that we just need to talk about these things. And man, I, I, I'm so encouraged by some of the things that I've seen you starting to do here. And what I want to do is I, I'm trying with this message not to heap guilt on anyone else. I'm trying to fan that flame, those embers that I'm seeing, that we're seeing here. And I want to say, let's keep going. Let's, 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 let's make this so much greater for your name's sake. And so I pray we'd make disciples here. I pray that we would not rest until we really believe this. And Lord, start with me. There are so many times, and I publicly confess, there are too many times where I'm just concerned about my own life and my own way and in, in just getting from point A to point B, getting, just getting the kids into bed so I have a couple hours by myself. I, I get it. I get my shortcomings. And so I, I publicly repent of that and ask and ask that you would change us and keep us to be focusing on you and saying what is most important is that we are sharing the gospel with people so that your name will be made famous because you're worth it. Help us to value you above rest. Help us to value you above comfort. Help us to value you above security. Help us to value you above every other relationship in our lives because you alone are worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.